this morning and turn with me to what are to me some of the scariest verses in the entire New Testament. In the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 7, beginning at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I want you to understand that these are some really, really good, hardworking religious people. Look at what they've done. They went around casting out demons. We read that right there in the text. They went around doing many wonders in the name of Jesus. These were good, hardworking, benevolent religious people. There's no doubt about it. They were absolutely, they, they would go around taking care of people's needs and if somebody was demon possessed, they would, they would drive out demons and they'd do all these incredible things. And I want you to know that this text is not only applicable to individuals, but to groups of individuals. We have churches today, groups of religious people with all kinds of strange names not found in the Bible, but they do a lot of good stuff. They distribute clothes to the poor. They pay bills for people. They have food pantries and clothing, uh, clothing uh, outlets, places that you can go and get stuff. They do a lot of great stuff. And they're a church. And so this applies to not only individuals, but groups of individuals working together. And I want you to know as you read through this and, and we see it and we understand it, these are deeply convicted religious people. They're pleading with the Lord on that day. They said, do we do all this stuff in your name? They're, they're, they're just absolutely blown away. They can't begin to understand why they're not going to heaven. They were sure they were going. They worked hard. They were completely convinced that they were going to heaven, but they were deeply, completely, and totally eternally, tragically wrong. How on earth is that even possible? How can it happen? Well, let's just take for a moment and think about the context surrounding these verses. Let's look at what they're sandwiched into. The answer as to how this could happen 
is because these are people who would, along with so many, which is a key word in this text, so many others, believe the very convincing false teaching of the very convincing false teachers which Jesus had just warned them about in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 20. You see, you can't just pull verses 21 through 23 out of the middle of this thing. Jesus is talking and it's flowing down through here. He's just talked to them about these false teachers. He's just talked to them about this wide and easy way which many would follow to their destruction. Right after he talked about those many people who would go down this wide and easy path to destruction, he starts talking about the false teachers who would take them there in verse 15, and then he comes right down into verse 21. It all flows. It all goes right along. These false teachers who would apparently convince them that doing the good works of their own choosing was more important than doing God's will out of their humbly submitting. They would do their, the good works that they chose rather than God's will which was in his word. That's the whole point Jesus makes. Only those who do the will of his Father in heaven are the ones going to, to to heaven. In fact, these are those who did the good works of their own choosing rather than God's will. And Jesus goes on in the rest of this chapter, most of the rest of it, to tell them God's will that they should have been doing is the very word that Jesus brought. They ought to be doing God's will. They ought to be doing what God said. They ought to be doing, building their house on the rock of Jesus' words, doing that instead of all these good works, because these good works weren't going to save them. How many times do we read in the scripture where we're not saved by works? There's something else they weren't doing. They were good people. That's the key. Don't miss that here. And so perhaps the greatest lesson overall that we learn from Jesus' conclusion of the entire Sermon on the Mount is this. Please listen closely. You're going to hear this more than once this morning. There is an immeasurably vast, eternal life and death difference between being even really good and religious and actually being honestly legitimately saved. Did you hear me? There is a world of difference, a vast immeasurable chasm of difference between even being really good and religious and actually being honestly, literally, and legitimately saved according to God's word. Now, this is a difference, probably most of us, if we were asked, well, do you understand that? Most of us say, well, yeah, I, I understand it, and we do. We all claim to know this, both biblically and intellectually, but, but here's what happens. We often allow Satan to get into our heads and to kind of blind us, both socially and tragically, to this truth. And it goes something like this, okay? You and I know, based on the scripture, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, we know that, okay? No matter how good or how great of a person they may be, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, those of accountable age. We understand it. They may be one of the greatest people you know, but they've still sinned. 
And, and that text goes on to tell us in Romans 3.23 that they are only justified, only way to be justified is justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is, catch it, in Christ Jesus. You see, redemption is only found in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 tell us that redemption and forgiveness and, and all of those blessings are only found in Christ Jesus. Just as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified, justified freely by the redemption that is where? In Christ Jesus. And so, the only way that a person is forgiven is if they are, guess where? In Christ Jesus. Even the best of people have sinned. But they're only justified if they're in Christ, and they only get into Christ. Here's the key. A person only gets into Christ not by doing good works, not by driving out demons as they could in those days, not by doing all these wonders, not by having a food pantry or a clothing closet or whatever, or paying people's bills. No, we're justified by being in Christ. And the only way into Christ is be being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism is into Christ. Romans 6, 3 and 4, Galatians 3, 26 and 7. Is there a person in this room or listening to this who believes that a person can get to heaven based on their good works? Almost every man-made denomination will tell you, no, you can't get to heaven by doing good works. You can't earn your salvation. You can't. And yet so often when we're around good people, maybe even church-going people, we tend to think, well, you know, they're a really good person. We let Satan kind of get into our heads and say, well... You know, I don't need to tell them about the gospel. I don't need to tell them about, because they're really good people and, and they go to church. See, Satan is very deceptive and very crafty. Every time we're around any good person for any length of time, Satan tries to get us to forget the fact that they ain't saved. Probably done it to all of us. You all know good people, right? Right? Most all of us know some good people. And they go to some man-made church and, you know. And so Satan can make say, well, could somebody that does those good things possibly not be saved? And, and we know intellectually that, that, yeah, the best of people are not saved if they got sin on them. But, but somehow we don't make that connection. And Satan gets right there and he works us hard. No matter how good a person is, if they are not in Christ Jesus, where God's grace and redemption are located then those people, no matter how good they are, listen to me closely, are still lost in their sins. I don't care who they are. If they are not in Christ, if they have not obeyed him and had their sins washed away, they are still lost no matter how good they are. And the last thing that Satan wants any of us to do who know God's word and know that truth, is to stay very awake and alert to the fact that this person's still lost even though they're good, and the last thing he wants us to do is share that with them. As I said, many of us know some really good people. People with whom we either work, play, go to school with, recreate with, we know some really good people. And, and they may be highly zealous, extremely religious people. They may be. They work hard. 
You never catch them using bad language. They wouldn't steal a pencil if their life depended on it. They're good people. Their ethics and their, 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 ethics and their integrity are beyond question. Beyond question. They're faithful to their spouses. They're faithful to their families. They're faithful to their churches. They are some of the most honest folks you've ever known. They attend their religious assemblies as regularly as we do, if not more so. They may even give more of their time and money than we do. And they may be even more deeply committed to their man-made doctrines than we are to the word of God. They are good people. Some of you who are older may remember Bill Anderson. Remember Whispering Bill? How many of you remember Bill Anderson? Yeah, there's a few of you. Remember that song about poor, poor folks? I mean, they were poor, right? They like have three O's in the word, right? Well, these are good people. It's like four O's in the word. They're good people. These are people that you are glad your kids and your grandkids have chosen to hang out with. These are people whom you trust completely with your kids to stay overnight. These are people that you are glad to associate with just because they are so incredibly, sincerely, and religiously wonderful, devout, and morally good and upright folks. They're good people. Their goodness in the sense that we have talked about, is beyond question. But here's the key. Their goodness is not the question. Their goodness is beyond question, but their goodness isn't the question, because no one is justified by their good works. The real question is, not are they good, but are they saved by the blood of Jesus Christ? That's the real question. That's the only one that counts. Because there is an immeasurably vast eternal life and death difference between being even really good and religious and actually being honestly, literally, and legitimately saved according to the scriptures. This morning, we're going to talk about one such man. Turn to me in your Bibles to Acts 10. Acts chapter 10. If anything I've said thus far this morning kind of raises your hackles, makes you say, how on earth dare he say that, or anything like that, I, I would urge you with the love of Christ to follow along in Acts 10. Acts 10, verse 1, even if you've heard this story a thousand times, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a number one devout man, one who number two feared God with all his household, number three who gave alms generously to the people, and number four prayed to God always. Was this a good guy? Is this the kind of guy that you'd like for your kids to go hang out with his kids if he had kids? This kind of guy that you might socialize with even if he wasn't a member of the church? Absolutely. This is a good guy. I want to tell you how good he was. The word devout in verse 2 comes from a Greek word that means devout, pious, or dutiful. This word is only used four times in the New Testament if you're taking notes. Listen to where this Greek word is used four times. Obviously, it's used here of Cornelius. He was devout. 
It's used of the soldier that he sends in verse 7. It's used of Ananias, who went to Saul of Tarsus in Acts 22, verse 12. And it's used in 2 Peter 2, 9, where Peter, after he calls Noah a preacher of righteousness and talks about righteous lot, says the Lord knows how to deliver the godly, the devout, the pious. Same, same words. Only used those four times in the entire New Testament. These are good men. And you can also see how devout Cornelius is because once God tells him to send this soldier to get Peter, guess what he does when he hears the word of God? Guess what he does? Exactly what God told him to do. That shows you how devout he is. He sent the soul. God said, send him. He, uh, God says, you send for Peter. So he does. Please also notice in verse 2, he feared God. This Greek word means to reverence or to treat with reverential obedience. He reverenced God. He would treat God with reverential obedience. That means whatever God told him to do, he'd do it. He feared God. Also notice in verse 2, he gave generously. Generous man. This Greek word appears in the King James Version in several forms. It is translated, this word generously is translated many, 210 times in the King James Version. Another 73, it's translated as much. Another 59, it's translated as great. He did some incredible work. He was benevolent, he gave to people, he'd feed the hungry, he'd do all this stuff. He was generous, and notice this. Notice the rest of verse two. He prayed to God at mealtime. Did you catch that? That's not what it says, is it? He prayed to God always. That can't even probably be said for every one of us to a person. How many of us pray to God always? Listen, if prayer could ever have saved a man, it would have saved Cornelius because he prayed to God always. If prayer could save anybody, it would have saved him. Well, him and Saul of Tarsus who prayed for three days without food to drink, that's another story. There's no doubt about it. Cornelius was a good with three O's, good, benevolent, convicted, zealous, devoted, religious man. But that is not the question. That's not the question at all. His goodness was beyond and out of the question. The real life and death question is this. Was he saved at this point? At the point we read about Cornelius in Acts 10, 1 and 2, was he saved by his own incredible and unquestionable goodness? Was he? Was he saved by his devotion to God, his devoutness to God? Was he saved by his God-fearing religion? Was he saved by his having shared his faith with probably his whole household? Was he saved by the strength of his convictions, the depth of his generosity, or the prayers that he poured out constantly? Was he saved? Absolutely not. Do you know good people who pray, benevolent, who'd probably do the word of God if somebody showed them what it said? Cornelius was one of those. 
Do you know that in Acts, here's something that's going to kind of shake some people up maybe, but do you know that in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, despite all the goodness, do you understand that he was still just as lost as Judas? Do you understand that? In Acts 10, 1 and 2, he was still just as lost as the Pharisees that condemned Jesus and wouldn't repent. As, as all of these, think of the worst person you can in today's world. Uh, you know, pedophile, murderer. At, at Acts 10, 1 and 2, Cornelius is just as lost as they are. Why? Because he still has sin just like they do. We've got to understand that, brethren. Remember, there is an immeasurably vast difference, an eternal life and death difference between being really good and being truly saved. And we can't allow Satan to blind us to that just because we know some good folk. Listen, if we allow Satan to blind us to the fact of where they are at, then we are doing some really good and wonderful, devout, religious, benevolent people. As terrible an injustice as Satan himself. Look at the scriptures, look at verses three through six. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa. Send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. In my Bible, that's highlighted. It's already extra large print, so I didn't have to embolden it or anything, but, which I couldn't anyway, but it's highlighted. He will tell you what you must Cornelius, there's still something you're missing. You're still lost, despite all of this good stuff. I know you'll listen if I send somebody to tell you, but Peter's the guy. He'll tell you what you must do. Yeah, God heard his prayer because he was a man who would listen to God. But he still ain't saved yet. We're not saved by prayer either. Cornelius had still sinned and fallen short of the glory of God despite his goodness. He had still the need to get rid of his sin. Even though he might have had a whole lot shorter sin list than Saul of Tarsus, he still needed that shorter list taken care of. There was still something he must do. There was still yet something he had not done. Something that Peter would come and tell him he must do when he came. And so Cornelius, being willing to listen to God, sends for Peter, takes right care of it. Now, how do I know for an absolute fact, not piecing stuff together, but for an absolute black and white biblical fact how do I know that this good, devout, devoted, benevolent, religious person, this prayer warrior, Cornelius, was absolutely not saved at this point by any of those things he had done? At this point, when he seeks to send men to seek Peter in verses 7 20 through 23 of Acts 10, how do I know that he was lost? I'll tell you how I know. Because the Bible tells me so. Did you know that? Did you know the Bible actually tells you this fact? I realize I'm 
jumping ahead a little and out of the story here, but you gotta understand this. This is how I know he was lost. We're gonna jump ahead a chapter. It's crucial that we do so. You see, we learn this fact when we see that Peter in Acts chapter 11 goes back to the church in Jerusalem and he's explaining to them what's happened in the household of Cornelius. And I want you to, to follow along with me here in chapter 11 starting at verse five. Well, we'll start in verse four. Peter explaining to the church in Jerusalem why he as a Jew had gone in and eaten with a Gentile. Here we go. Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision. An object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild bees, creeping things, birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise Peter, kill and eat. But I said, not so Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven. Well, God is cleansed, you must not call common. Obviously referring to he's going into the home of a Gentile as he explains. Verse 10, now this was done three times and all were drawn up again into heaven. And at that very moment, verse 11, three men stood before the house where I was having been sent to me from Caesarea. These are the men that Cornelius had sent. Peter continues his report after the, after the meeting with Cornelius. Verse 12 of Acts 11, then the spirit told me to go with them doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me. We entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. Watch this, here we go, verse 14, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Cornelius and his household were not yet saved, despite the fact he was pious, God-fearing, benevolent, prayerful. When he sends those men to Peter, he's not saved because God told Peter, I'm sorry, because we see here in verse 14 that Peter was going to tell Cornelius words by which he and his household would be saved. Do you see it? Everybody see that? One of the best men of the first century, it looks like, in Acts 10. But he ain't saved. Good as he is, he's not saved. In chapter 11, here, in verses 14 through 18, Peter goes on again to continue reporting to the church. He talks about how the, the Holy Spirit had indeed come in miraculous form upon Cornelius and his household as, as this visit had continued. Now, Peter also explains why. He says, as he's talking about it, and, and they all come to the agreement here, they come to understand that the reason the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit had fallen on Cornelius the Gentile was simply so that God could prove that the Gentiles were just as acceptable as the Jews were because it had happened to the Jews in Acts 2. Back at the very beginning, the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 had fallen on Jews, and now God is just verifying that the Gentiles are just as acceptable to him. That's why the Holy Spirit was sent on Cornelius and his household. Now, you have people who will say, aha, the minute the Holy Spirit miraculously fell on Cornelius and his household, that proves they were saved. That proves it. The miraculous gift fell on that proved they were saved. But where did God ever say in the scriptures, ever, 
Cornelius, you'll be saved when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Where did he say that? He didn't say that, did he? Listen, if all that had to happen was for the Holy Spirit to fall on Cornelius and his household, and that was somehow proof that they were saved, why send Peter? Why bother to go through all that effort to have Cornelius send men up there to get Peter, drag Peter all the way back here, have him preach. If all it was going to take to save Cornelius and his household was, boom, there's the gift of the Holy Spirit, then why on earth go to the trouble of having Peter come way down there? Why? Why did God go through all that if simply having the Holy Spirit fall on him would have saved him? Well, he didn't. According to the word of God, it was the very words of God which Peter would speak to them, Acts 11 and verse 14, the very words that Peter would say that would save them, not the falling of the Holy Spirit on but the very words of Peter. He will tell you words by which you must be saved. It got nothing to do with the Holy Spirit coming on him as far as his salvation. He will tell you words by which you must be saved. He will tell you what you must do, Acts 10, 6 that will save you if you have faith enough to believe and obey those words. Listen, if they believed in their heart, Romans 10, 9 and 10 and Hebrews 11, the words which the Apostle Peter would speak to them, enough to obey them from the heart, that is that form of doctrine, Romans 6, 17, then they could be saved. But it was all in the words Peter said. So what exactly did Peter say? While he was there, what did he say to this Right then and there, when he was there, this very pious, religious, prayerful, benevolent, but lost, but lost still group of people. What did he say? Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Let's look at what he said. Then he, that is Peter, said to them, that is Cornelius and his household, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation, but God has shown me I should not call any man common or unclean. We read that earlier. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting. Not only did he pray, not only was he benevolent, but he fasted at the ninth hour. I prayed in my house. Behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, said, Cornelius, your prayer's been heard, your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he'll speak to you. So I have sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we're all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Cornelius understood that it would be the words Peter would tell him he must do that would save him, not the falling of the Holy Spirit on him. Peter opened his mouth, verse 34. Said, I, in truth I perceive God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all, that word you know. He said, you know this part of the word, you know this part of the story which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we're witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem who they killed by hanging on a tree. 
God raised him up on the third day, showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judged of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Now, this is the same Peter, used the same phrase, much earlier in the beginning talking to the Jews in Acts 2 and verse 38. Peter replied, let each of you repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Peter's message hasn't changed. Hasn't changed at all. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Please notice, don't miss this. We got too many good religious, hard-working friends, neighbors, and family members who are not saved. Don't miss this. Even though they received the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit in verses 44 through 46, Peter is still not done. He has still not told them all the words which they needed to believe and obey in order to receive the remission of sins. He hasn't told them the whole story yet. He hasn't told them what they must do, but he does. While he's telling them about Jesus, Holy Spirit falls on them. Proves to everybody that God's accepted the Gentiles too, but they still haven't heard the words and what they must do to be saved. But they're about to. Verse 47 and 8. or the rest of verse 46 through 48. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded, this is what they must do, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. This is what they must do. This is what his word said. This is the whole point of the whole message. Doesn't matter how good he was, he still had sin, and that sin still had to be dealt with. Listen, prior to their, by faith, belief in their hearts, in the words that Peter commanded, telling them what they must do, that is water baptism into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, prior to this point right here, Cornelius and his household, don't miss this, Cornelius and his household, his whole household, were simply another outstanding group of good, pious, religious, benevolent, but still unforgiven and in their sins, lost souls outside of Christ and headed for hell. Just like the people. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Same thing we see, and I'll just tell you about this briefly and then we'll close. Turn to me to Acts 2, to the first gospel sermon Peter preached, mostly amongst the Jews there in Jerusalem who had gathered for the Feast of Pentecost. The message hasn't changed since Peter first preached it. Didn't matter if he's preaching it to Jews or Gentiles or whomever. Have you ever thought about this? 
Have you ever considered, I know in Acts 2 we often go to verse 38 and we talk about through verse 41, and, and I understand that, but, but just stop before we get there. Just, just stop a minute. Have you ever considered in Acts chapter 2 what good, devout, devoted, religious people these folks already were that gathered in Jerusalem for the Pentecost celebration. Have you ever stopped to think how religious they were already? What good people they already were? What God, why were they there? They were there because of this feast that God had told them they needed to observe. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 5, it talks about these devout people from all over the place. Look at verse 5. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout. Hmm, where have we seen that word devout before? Hmm, Acts 10, 2 maybe. Okay. Devout men from every nation under heaven. And we could read down through where all these different places they came from. But listen, they'd all come together for this feast. Listen. We have things that we go to, some of us, as a church. Some of you may have in the past attended gospel meetings. You may have gone and attended Affirming the Faith on a Friday night and a Saturday. Now, if you're going to go to Affirming the Faith over in Oklahoma City, you're going to have to make some plans and some prep. You're going to have to get a motel room for Friday night. You're going to have to, if you have children, you're going to have to either set up babysitting or make sure they've got plenty to do. Um, th there's a whole bunch of planning that goes into this. Maybe you've got a half a day off Friday from work. But to make that trip and go to this religious day and a half even, you have to make some plans. That makes sense to everybody? If you go into polishing the pulpit, and you're going over there to Sevierville, Tennessee, and you're going to be gone a week. Maybe you're going to take a week's vacation, and, and you have to reserve rooms ahead of time. You have to make sure you got, you know, the finances, the finances to do it and to eat and to travel, and maybe you'll fly, and maybe you'll, But there's all kinds of, of stuff that goes into getting there for a week. Is that true? Take some effort. These were those kind of people. These were people who were coming to Jerusalem for a week-long celebration because they were God-fearing people. Don't miss that. But despite the depth of their convictions, the strength of their devotion, they're still not saved until Peter preached to them the very words and will of God, which those who trusted God would then obey by faith from the heart to have whatever sins even such good and godly people still have that need to be dealt with by the blood of Christ in order to be finally forgiven. And in fact, that's what we see in Acts chapter 2 as Peter closes his sermon with verse 36. says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? And again, these were people who were there for the week. These were people from all over the place who'd made the journey and the prep and the time and gotten there. But they still had sin. Peter said to them, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. Hello, Cornelius. Same thing he tells him. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. 
Many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved. Listen, these people weren't saved. They were good. They were really good to be that devoted, and that, but they weren't saved. They weren't saved any more than the good people of Matthew 7, 21 through 23. They weren't saved any more than Cornelius in the first part of Acts 10. They still aren't saved or else he wouldn't tell them they needed to be. Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word, like Cornelius and his household, were baptized. That day about 3,000 souls were added to them. After that, they go on to do good works, but they don't earn their way into heaven. Because even the best of men and women still have sins, and they still got to be dealt with by the blood. One sin, keep you out of heaven. This is what so many of our religious friends and neighbors don't seem to understand. You may know some of the most absolutely wonderful, outstanding, morally upright and honest, devoted religious people in the world. Family, friends, neighbors, classmates, coworkers. They're Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Cornelius, day of Pentecost, like religious people. They're just good people. But one final time, there is an immeasurably vast eternal life and death difference between being even really good and being truly saved according to the word of God. There's something they still must do according to the word of God delivered by Peter in places like Acts 2, 37 through 41 and 10, 47 through 48. And listen, if they don't do it, this is so tragic. This is why Matthew 7, 21 through 23 scares me so. It's why it hurts so much. Even if the best, most religiously devoted, hardest working and most benevolent good people in the world do not have the faith in their heart to do what God's word says they must do, then they are still tragically nothing more than absolutely wonderful, benevolent, but still unwashed, unsaved, and unforgiven sinners who will ultimately die in their sins and be sent to hell by Jesus because they did not do the Father's will to have their sins washed away as revealed in his word. And if you and I are willing to continue to allow Satan to blind us to this very basic biblical truth just because our friends may be good people or attend church but have never been forgiven by doing what the Bible says they must, including repenting and being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins? And what kind of friend and family are we to them? really. I appreciated Brother M. Ryan's words. If you're watching this and you have questions, please get a hold of us through our Facebook page. If there's one word that I have said this morning that anybody in this room or anybody who ever hears this lesson can say, that ain't what the Bible says, I'll be glad to apologize to everybody up front. But if it is exactly what the Bible says, it 
and you don't want to be just a good person that Jesus says, depart from me forever, then you don't need to get in touch with me to tell me I'm wrong. You need to get in touch with what God's word says to be made right. If there's anybody here this morning who would be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, anybody at home that would like to do that or learn more about it, please come right now as we stand and sing.